Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. From the territories, to Titan Towers, to TNA, and all points in between, he's seen and done it all. And now, he's here to share the real story behind wrestling's biggest moments, controversies, and characters. The MLW Radio Network presents Something to Wrestle with Bruce Pritchard. Thompson, and you're listening to Something to Wrestle With. Bruce Pritchard. Bruce, what's going on, man? How are you? Uh, you know, just another day in paradise here by God and friends with Texas. Well, I gotta say, I am uh, looking forward to this week's show. I have to admit, a little peek behind the curtain, you have not felt good all week. Uh, you've had some health challenges where you were just, man, under the weather. And uh, I have been busier than a one-armed paper hanger. So I have not been able to do nearly as much research on this show as I hoped. Uh, so we may actually have to circle back to this one if we can't get the 19 hours that this show deserves. It's Survivor Series 1990. I can't believe that uh, we're finally here. It's Thanksgiving Day, November 22nd, 1990. We're at the Hartford Civic Center. And we're in Hartford, Connecticut. This is the fourth Survivor Series. Man, so much to talk about with here. Lots and lots. Uh, before we get into it, because we're going to break this down just to a ridiculous detail. Uh, and, and I'm sure that I'm going to miss a lot of stuff. And we're going to have to come back and cover it again. Because there's so much here. And I just didn't have a lot of time this week. Uh, what jumps out to you about Survivor Series, independent of this show? We're going to cover this show. But uh, you were there in the formative years of this concept. How did this come about, the Survivor Series concept as a whole? Well, the original idea was this was back in 1987, the first uh, Survivor Series at Richfield Coliseum uh, outside of Cleveland. And it was Jim Crockett wanted to do whatever pay-per-view he wanted to do on Thanksgiving. And I don't know if that's Starcade or whatever his yeah, Thanksgiving. What was that? Starcade. Starcade. And they wanted to go on pay-per-view. And Vince, at the time, had WrestleMania, which was the biggest draw on pay-per-view. Pay-per-view was in its infancy. Right. And every year at that point you just had WrestleMania three, which did huge pay-per-view numbers for the time. And Vince wasn't real happy about Jim Crockett making his 
entree into the pay-per-view world. And Vince let the cable companies know, beyond a shadow of a doubt, if you took Jim Crockett's event, that WrestleMania would not be available to them. And the cable companies kind of fought back a little bit. They said, well, you know, what's the big deal? If, if it's not the quality product, then it won't matter. And, you know, Vince was like, well, if you do that, then there will be no WrestleMania. And their thing was, we need an alternative. And Vince's alternative was, I'll give you, I'll give you something else. And that's when he came up with the Survivor Series. And it was the, the first one was teams of five strive to survive. And it was all team matches. And, uh, that's how it got started. So really, and truly, you know, the only reason this thing exists is a middle finger to the competition. Essentially. Yeah. Another opportunity to make money. Well, but really it's an opportunity to keep the other guy from making money. Well, essentially it was to keep the other guy from getting to the avenue of pay-per-view and getting on pay-per-view. Yeah. I just said that to keep them from making money. No, they could make money. They just didn't want them on pay-per-view. It was no, it was no different than, you know, the way that they had exclusive deals with buildings, which is also to keep them from making money. Uh, Never mind. I mean, you just keep building the argument, but working around it. Help me understand, though, um, how do these conversations happen with the cable companies? I've always been fascinated by this. Did Vince carry just that much weight and he would just get aligned directly to the, the big cheese at the individual cable providers and set up a conference call and then just lay it out like that one by one? Sure. He was their biggest provider. He provided them with the most money. So his events were, were drawing and making the cable companies and Encore and everybody a lot of money. So, yeah, he had all the clout. Do you remember, uh, I mean, were you in the room when any of those meetings happened? And do you remember any of them not going their way and events just flipping out on somebody? No, and I don't know necessarily how many of those conversations Vince himself personally had. I'm sure he had a few. Sure. But, uh, it was probably Jim Troy or Linda or someone else that was dealing with them for the most part. But you never had to have any of those conversations yourself? No. Um, when we're talking about pay-per-view here, is this the first time that you guys kicked around the idea of doing something on a holiday? Yeah, that that was something that was historically, you know, in the South – Holidays were, those were huge money days, man. We ran on Christmas day. We ran on Thanksgiving. We ran on Easter. We think, you know, those were big money days for actually most promotions, the Northeast, not so much. They didn't run holidays, especially Thanksgiving. And and the fact that Thanksgiving was Vince's favorite holiday was, was kind of sacrilegious as well. So the Northeast the WWF was not a territory that traditionally ran holidays. So that was unique in and of itself as well. He, he didn't feel that people would come out and support a live event and especially a pay-per-view event on holidays. So it's not based on our people deserve the day off. It's based on, we're not sure it'll draw. So let's not waste the money. Well, no, at first it was, I think more than anything was, yeah, it was, Holiday was a holiday and felt that most people wouldn't come out and 
and come to any kind of entertainment event. So the decision is made to not only create a new pay-per-view, but do it on a holiday, which is something we've never done before, just right. to keep the other guy from having a crack at pay-per-view. There you go. I love the ruthless aggression. Uh, so kind of carry us through this whole concept. I think he said the strive for five and blah, blah, blah. Pat Patterson is really credited with being the man behind the concept of the Royal rumble who should get the credit for the survivor series. Probably Vince. Well, I'm curious by that. And you know, I know it's going to feel like I'm arguing with you right away. So here it comes just last week when we talked about, um, tag team wrestling, in regards to, you know, the breaking up of the Hardys and then the Dudley boys and Edge and Christian and blah, blah, blah. You kind of said that, um, Vince's attitude was, Hey, you know, fewer guys in a match, you can have more matches. You can draw more money. You got to pay them more for a tag match. And now here is a whole damn pay-per-view based around giant tag matches. Yeah, but they weren't giant tag teams. There was one match that was all tag teams. The majority of them were bastard, you know, teams of five of uh, baby faces versus heels. And it was a pay-per-view event. It wasn't a house show tour. You know, we had all those guys. There were only five matches on the card on the very first one. I'm just curious by behind the, men- the mindset and how it can switch when the thought on one card, like a WrestleMania is let's put as many matches as we can on the card to quote unquote feature as many guys but then on this, it's, well, let's just cram as many together as we can. Well, again, there were only five matches, and there were five guys on each team except for the tag team match. And it was just, you know, if you try to apply logic to Vince McMahon's thinking, then that's a whole nother, uh that's a psychologist level, something I'm not qualified for. Okay, well, let's talk about kind of what was happening at the time, um, you know, for for pay-per-views at least. SummerSlam 1990, which would have been the previous pay-per-view, when you come into this, um, it's a pretty big card, or I'm fascinated by it at least. On top is the Ultimate Warrior taking on Rick Rude in a steel cage match, really probably Rude's only big time main event pay-per-view with the company in the WWF. Is that fair to say? Uh, yeah, it was his first headline. Yeah. I think it was his only from a pay-per-view standpoint. Probably. Uh, Hulk Hogan defeats earthquake. This is the, the return. Um, it's the big payoff from where Hogan, you know, was out of commission and they brought in tugboat and blah, 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 which we've covered before. Uh, and he wins by count out at SummerSlam, which I thought was weird that that was the big payoff. Uh, Randy Savage at SummerSlam 1990 beats Dusty Rhodes in like two minutes. Was the writing already on the wall in the summer of 1990 that Dusty's on his way out? He would finish up at the Royal Rumble 1991 as as far as that being his last big pay-per-view. Did you guys already know by August, like a handful of months here and he's done? No, it wasn't. Not, not yet. It, that was more a situation of getting Randy in, in the position to go with Warrior and just getting Randy moved up a little bit more and back in that top spot. Uh, Jake Roberts uh, defeats Bad News Brown at SummerSlam 1990. Big Boss Man is a special guest referee. Uh, if you remember, they did a, a little skit back and forth with snakes and rats and all that. 
Um, the Hart Foundation would defeat uh, Demolition to uh, in the WWF tag match for the tag team titles. Uh, and that was two out of three falls. So that was kind of a big deal. And then interestingly enough, the dark match for SummerSlam 1990, Shane Douglas defeats Buddy Rose. And a lot of people, I don't think, even remember that that was a thing, but it was. Uh, and the, the only reason I mention those is because some of that is going to be relative to what we're talking about here today. So let's start with the dark match. Again, Shane Douglas and Buddy Rose. Can you kind of help me understand how this happens? Like two back-to-back pay-per-views, it's the dark match. A lot of people don't even really remember that Shane Douglas was there during this time. Why didn't Shane have more of a, a run, you know, as a young talent there in 1990? Because he's, I mean, he's obviously working dark matches on pay-per-views back-to-back, the same match. Do you remember anything about that at all? You know, I don't, and I saw that on Twitter, people asking that question, and I have no clue at all, and I didn't even know until you just said it now. That was a dark match at SummerSlam 1990, so, you know, I don't think there was that much thought really gone into it other than there were two guys that weren't booked on the pay-per-view that would have a hell of a match. Uh, Buddy Rose, if if you're listening and you might be a younger fan and you don't remember this, uh, was, was a really talented performer, a good worker, uh, but he got heavier as time went on and he did a blow away diet skit with you guys. That was really some classic TV and it's hilarious. And if you haven't seen it, you should go through it in your Google machine. It's worth a look. Whose idea was the blow away diet? And what did you think about it? It was Buddy Rose's idea that he pitched us in a Denny's somewhere in middle America while we were sitting down at two o'clock in the morning, having a late night meal and buddy came over to us and told us his idea of the blow away diet. And Vince liked it so much that booked buddy in to come on in and uh, we shot the commercial. It's phenomenal. If you've never seen it, the gist is, (laughs) I don't even want to ruin it. Just throw in your Google machine. It's worth a look. It's one of the most hilarious things I think ever in wrestling. Um, what did you think of Buddy Rose as a performer and what did Vince think? Because so often we hear that Vince is a body guy and this and that. And, you know, he, he, you've kind of done impressions about, oh, he's so fat or whatever. But now he's, you know, Rose is approaching this tongue in cheek. Is this something Vince is into? This almost seems like a Vince idea. What part? Just, the blow away? Yeah, just to really ridicule the fat guy. I mean, had somebody smart and well, buddy rose up that hey. Well man. again, it was Buddy it was Buddy's idea of ridiculing himself. I mean, sure. Buddy did that all the time. It was Buddy's, you know, whole thing carrying around a scale saying he was only two hundred and seventeen pounds when he was three hundred plus and, and having his scale that was set at two hundred and seventeen pounds. So I mean that was all Buddy stuff. Buddy Rose was an extraordinary performer, and he was a huge main eventer in the Northwest and in Portland, Seattle, for Don Owens' promotion out there. And Buddy drew some huge money back in the day. And Buddy had come in and worked the WWF for Vince's dad in the garden and had done big business in New York. So it was just, you know, time time took its toll. And Buddy had put on uh, an awful lot of weight at that time, and 
it just, you know, he wasn't the worker that he was in his younger days. Well, go check it out. If you aren't familiar with it, the Buddy Rose Blowaway Diet is, uh, is worth a peek. Uh, so let's talk about actually getting to this show. Um, kind of catch me up, you know, to this Thanksgiving piece of business. Who breaks it to the boys? Hey, guys, you're not going home for Thanksgiving this year. <laughs> I have no idea. It was probably just something they got their booking sheets and saw they were working on Thanksgiving. So, I mean, that wasn't, wasn't like it was a huge, a huge deal. And so many of them prior to coming to the WWF, it, it always worked. You know, like I said, it was a big money day in the business. So it was just another day of work. So you don't remember any pushback the day of the show from guys, you know, I'm not with my family or this or that. Obviously, like you said, the guys from Crockett era or, or the Crockett promotion, they were used to this, you know. Rick tells a story all the time about, you know, having holidays on off days or seeing them the morning of or whatever. And then that's it. Yeah, no, not really. Uh, none that I can remember. It was, it was another day. And I think for the most part, people were happy to work. So it was just another day to get a payday. So let's run through, um, uh, there were guys on this card that were pushed in the promotional photos and then not actually on the show. Had you heard, heard about this before? Does this ring a bell at all? The only one that I know of, uh, was bad news. Brown was originally a part of the million dollar team. Let me get to that last. That's the one everybody wants to talk about for obvious reasons. We'll, we'll get there. That's the only one I remember. What happened with ravishing Rick rude? I don't remember. I, he's in I the, just don't remember. He's in the photo, uh, the original preliminary photo. That eventually Haku appears in. So um, it's Dino Bravo and it's Earthquake and it's Barbarian and it's and it's Ravishing Rick Rude. But then all of a sudden, when it's time for the actual show, Rude's out, Haku's in. And this is coming off the heels of he's in the freaking main event, the pay-per-view before, and now he's not here. There's got to be a story there. Does any of that jog your memory? Yeah, it does. And that that's about the time, you know, Rude was a guy that I, in, in Rude's opinion, and I would share the same, same opinion really helped make ultimate warrior. And when Rick was brought back to work with warrior when after WrestleMania six and warrior was a champion and, and Rick was brought back specifically to get warrior over. Um, I don't think Rick was happy with his payoff from SummerSlam and he wasn't really happy with warriors attitude either. Um, cause again, Rick did, did everything to, to get warrior where he needed to be. And I, I guess that's the timing because as you say that I remember, okay, SummerSlam 90 rude and warrior and Rick not being real happy after that's that SummerSlam match. And I don't think he was happy with his payoff from SummerSlam either. Especially in comparison to what he probably thought Warrior got, or maybe what Warrior told him he got. Do you know what Rude actually got? I have no idea. Well, just ballpark for us. Somebody at Rude's level uh, for a pay-per-view like SummerSlam 1990. Obviously, you don't have a logbook in front of you like Jim Cornette did for everything back then, but... Just freestyle. Is it a six-figure payoff? Would you expect it to be? I'm not saying it was. No, it's probably five figures. Oh, okay. 
all right. In my head, that was a hundred thousand dollar deal, the main event, but probably on that SummerSlam card, uh, Hogan gets that warrior gets that. And that may be it. Probably. Okay. Look guys, we got some money talk out of Bruce. Let's keep it up. Um, so before we get to uh, bad news, Brown, the, and that's the one everybody wants to talk about. We're getting there. Akeem is on the original promotional photos, uh, as a heel here with Sergeant Slaughter and the Orient Express. And of course we know that Slaughter is getting tuned up for his WrestleMania seven American trader concept. So he's tagged with a couple of Japanese guys. I get that, but he's with Akeem, the African dream. And then all of a sudden, in one of the worst photoshops in wrestling history, he is replaced by Boris Zukov. What the hell? How does this come the, about? The Russian from South Carolina. <laughs> North Carolina. Where the hell Jim is from. That's hilarious. Yeah, it was just simply uh, to have a foreigner in there. So they put the Russian in. But I, I don't know if Akeem was hurt or, or what the deal was with him. This Mother's Day and Father's Day, look no further for the perfect gift than PaintYourLife.com. It's worked for me every time, and when I say every time, I mean it. I've used PaintYourLife.com to bring tears to the eyes of my mom, my dad, even my father-in-law. And right now, I'm ordering one for my mother-in-law, all from PaintYourLife.com. My mother-in-law's life is her dog, Missy. And this year, my wife and I knew exactly what to get my mother-in-law for Mother's Day, a painting of Missy. It really is that simple too. All we needed was a a picture from our phone. Boom. We're up and running. You see, paintyourlife.com can really create a hand painted portrait to fit almost any budget. And it's the perfect gift for your mother, your father, or both. I've used it, as I said, on almost every person in my life. I've given these to my wife. I've given it to my cousin, my mom, my dad, my father-in-law. If I'm looking to give a truly meaningful, personable gift, I know the paintyourlife.com has my back and they're going to make it easy. You can go ahead and start the entire process in less than five minutes. And what's really cool about paintyourlife.com is they can even combine photos. Maybe you want to put two people who never met in one of your favorite vacation spots. You can do that. Just upload the photos. Bam. You're good to go. Maybe grandpa never got to meet his grandson with paintyourlife.com. That can become a reality. You can put people and places together. Even if they've never been there, you pick the artist, you pick the medium. Do you want oil, acrylic, watercolor, charcoal? You can even go ahead and pick out an awesome frame. The whole process to get started, as I said, takes less than five minutes and you can actually get your painting in as little as two weeks, but you work hand in hand with the artist to get every detail. Perfect. If you're looking to get those waterworks going to have your mom or your dad tear that paper and just almost be overcome with emotion. That's what I got. And I've never gotten that reaction to a gift card. You can give the most meaningful gift you've ever given at paintyourlife.com. There's no risk. If you don't love the final painting, your money is refunded, guaranteed. And right now, as a limited time offer, get 20% off your painting. That's right, 20% off and free shipping. Now, to get this special offer, just text the word WRESTLE to 87204. That's WRESTLE to 87204. Text WRESTLE to 87204. Paint your life. Celebrate the moments that matter most. Message and data rates may apply. See paintyourlife.com slash terms for details. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about... 
how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford anything, wherever you listen. So, um, just no recollection of why he would have left at all. It seems like uh, he finishes up uh, in October, and then he's out of the company. Do you know why Akeem left? He showed up in WCW like six months later, I guess. As the one, he he did the one man gang down there again. But do you remember how that how his WWF tenure came to an end? Yeah, I think Gang just was tired, if you will, from the travel and not happy with his pay in general. You know, that you reach a point where you kind of get sick of it, ready to go. And Gang was never a guy, wasn't an extravagant guy, but he just wanted to be treated right. And I don't think he felt he was being treated right. Based on his character, wins and losses, travel. Money. Okay. Money. There we go. Um, is a guy at his level in 1990, is he a six figure guy? Sure. But maybe not, maybe not 200. I really don't know where he was at that point. I have no idea. Well, that was fun while it lasted. Okay. So, uh, we're in Hartford, Connecticut. How far is this from your house when you're doing this? Cause at this point you're living in Connecticut, right? Yep, at that point I was living in Wilton, Connecticut, by God. So, so it's 30 minutes up the road. So this was not even that big of an inconvenience for you from a holiday standpoint, or probably the McMahons. No, not at all. It was much better than uh, Richfield the two previous years. Does this go into uh, consideration, do you think, like in my head, if the boss wants to, if he loves Thanksgiving and that's his holiday, of course he would book an arena 30 minutes from home. Well, no, I mean, the first two were in Richfield, Ohio. Yeah. And he hated that. So he fixed it here. I no, just one year. It was actually the same company, the same management group as well, but they managed both buildings. Okay, cool. Uh, we haven't really talked about that before, but, uh, who was kind of helping pick buildings back then? Did you guys have a team that did that? Can you tell us about what that process looked like? That was a team of Ed Cohen. Ed Cohen booked the buildings and he had a big map on his wall and he had darts and he would close his eyes and throw them at the board to decide where the boys would go. Well, I don't doubt that that is the way they felt, but do you know what the real strategy or philosophy was? Well, Ed just tried to, he tried to book them, um, geographically friendly so that the guys didn't have too far to travel and try to minimize travel expenses as much as possible. But he also would look at time of year and where they traditionally drew the best and, and try to be in the same towns that they only frequented, frequented a couple of times a year at the same times of the year so that if you ran, for example, uh, Calgary and you ran Calgary in, in August and then maybe you ran it in February, why you would run Calgary in February, I don't know, but uh, that was kind of the mindset behind it. So that you would be there at the same time of year, people would be looking out for you and, and 
expect the tour coming through. You think Ed Cohen gets, um, I don't know, the fair amount of credit that he deserves for the success of the company back in the early days? Because he seems like kind of one of the unsung heroes. Absolutely not. And Ed Cohen was one of the original hires. The, the story goes that when Ed Cohen walked into the, I think it was Howard Finkel and then Ed Cohen. Uh, Howard Finkel was the first employee hired on April 1st. And then Ed Cohen came after that. And Ed walked into Vince's office at the Cape Cod Coliseum in a leather jacket, a beard, and a hot blonde on his arm. And Vince told him that uh, two of the three needed to go, and Ed got rid of the girl and the beard. But he kept the jacket. Yeah, and that was the wrong two, according to Vince. Should have been the beard and the jacket and keep the girl? Exactly. I got it. So it's Survivor Series 1990. We're at the Hartford uh, Civic Center. Uh, rumors and innuendo would lead you to believe that you guys drew about 16,000 that night. Is, is that a, is that considered a good house at the time? Great house. Yeah. It's damn near capacity. So it's a great house. Uh, let's get into it. I guess we're going to eventually the match card. Uh, we've already covered the dark match. It's Shane Douglas and buddy Rose. And then the, uh, concept here, this is maybe the, uh, the only time they do this is there's going to be a series of matches and there's going to be like an all-stars type match at the end of the show. So the survivors from each individual match would then go on and, and participate in one super match at the end, almost like a tournament format, an all-stars type format for people who live in America and are familiar with like little league baseball, uh, whose idea is it because it seems like this is the last time that you guys do this. This never returns, uh, or it doesn't for a long time. Maybe it did in recent years and I just missed it, but, uh, it's the only one I remember where this is the concept and it's an all-stars type deal. Any memories of that? Yeah, it was horrible in my opinion, what but don't you it like was about it. What don't you like about it? Well, in explaining the concept, the concept was that you would have all the survivors from the earlier matches come back in one giant survivor match. Well, to me, in the way that it was explained to me, and the way we explained it on television, was pretty much that vague, that everybody would come back in a match, and that I took it as everyone would battle in a battle royal type scenario with only one survivor. And we even talked about a sole survivor at the end of the night. And what it ended up being was a tag match, baby faces against heels. And I just, I personally just thought it sucked. It was kissing your sister. I don't think it accomplished much other than getting Hulk and warrior with their hands raised at the end of the night. All right. Did uh, you like it? I was a kid, so I liked anything you put out at the time. So, I mean, I can just tell the truth. I'm nine years old here, and I think this is awesome. No matter what it is, it's awesome. I loved Earthquake. I loved The Million Dollar Man. I didn't hate Rhythm and Blues. I am the prototypical WWF fan when this pay-per-view comes down. Okay, cool. That's uh, good to know. Yeah. 
so I'm going to, I'm going to be, you know, looking at this show pretty favorably. Uh, and one of the things that everybody, you know, kind of remembers about this show is the concept of it being all the warriors on one team. And what I mean is the road warriors, even though you can't call them that, uh, they're here and they're tagging, uh, with the ultimate warrior who has, I guess the only warrior allowed and the Texas tornado who was nicknamed the modern day warrior. And they defeat the perfect team, which is Mr. Perfect demolition Axe, demolition smash and demolition crush. And they have two heel, um, managers in Bobby Heenan and Mr. Fuji. So catch us up about how this collaboration of the ultimate warrior and the Legion of doom and the Texas tornado, and they're all on the same team and they all kind of have that common thread of the warrior nickname. Well, for the most part, I mean, all the matches were, they tried to be matched up with issues and ultimate warrior, um, was ultimate warrior, but the Legion of doom had an issue with demolition and tornado and perfect had an issue at the time. And, you know, then there was just ultimate warrior who could be the leader and be the warriors. And I'm sure, you know, without having to come out and say it without a doubt, you know, there, you had all the warriors there, as you said, on one team and watching this match, it just brought back the memories of how God awful that the ultimate warrior was in the ring bell to bell and how great Mr. Perfect was. Um, God perfect was incredible. And he made anybody that he was in the ring with look like a million bucks. And also just, you know, watching this, it made me just reminisce on what an ungodly, incredible athlete that Kerry Von Erich was. Uh, well, yeah, he looked like a million bucks here. Uh, maybe one of the best bodies in the business at the time. I don't know that that can even really be argued. Um, but even with one, even with one foot, he he's held his own in there and just unbelievable athleticism. Um, I mentioned this warrior thing because the warrior wrestles this night, uh, with, uh, words on the back of his trunks that say the only warrior. And, you know, looking back now, knowing that Vince probably made the road warriors change their name because we already have warriors, pal. We already have a warrior, pal. It calls them the Legion of Doom. And, you know, Carrie was the modern day warrior. Is this a rib? Is this a dig? Is this, is there any thought put into the, him putting on his trunks? The only warrior. Does anybody pay any attention to this or is this just fans like me? No, I think it's just fans like you and the ultimate warrior. Clearly in the ultimate warrior, obviously. Yeah. But you know, you go back to the, to the road warriors and Legion of doom, the Legion of doom was something that Vince could own. Right. And it was different than what they went by in WCW and with, you know, Carrie, they own the Texas tornado. So it was simply a licensing and IP deal. That's why uh, change. That's why he changes most people's names. It's a little interesting to me too, just how much the business has changed when you go back and you watch this, because there are eight participants in the match and six of them have paint on their face. Six. That's a lot. Yep. Uh, no, wait a minute. Yeah, you're right. Okay. I'm sorry. I was going to say, no, there were three demolition, but yeah, there's six. 
Yeah, three plus three. Do, do, do. Do, do, do. Uh, this is the only time that Demolition face the Legion of Doom in a pay-per-view match. Feels like a missed right. opportunity. Am I wrong? You know, probably so. Um, I'm probably wrong, or it's probably a missed opportunity. No, I think it's probably a missed opportunity. You know, it's just one of those things, I guess, that didn't really ever line up. And, you know, the other thing that I, I found unique about it is if you go back and you look at the graphics for the match itself, all the demolition guys are wearing black masks. And that was just kind of, that struck me as, wow, that's strange. Well, they probably did that in my head to differentiate themselves from the road warriors. Am I wrong? Well, um, yeah, cause they still wore their face paint and everything, but the graphics for the match itself, they were wearing complete black masks. It was just strange. It was in the promotional material beforehand. They had their face paint and their normal demolition look, but in the graphics uh, before the match in the very top of the show, they were wearing all black masks on the actual video cassette. Uh, they are wearing paint, uh, and everybody's in their full paint here. This feels like Bill Eady's last show uh, with the company. Uh, do you remember? He's he's suing them today. He's had uh, on and off lawsuits with them ever since. Um, but his his last appearance with the company, as far as I know, um, is here at Survivor Series 1990. Do you know where this kind of came about it seems like um they formed a threesome so to speak with crush uh at the previous pay-per-view SummerSlam 1990 and the rumors and innuendo would have you believe that uh, bill Eady had taken a backstage role with the company because he just wasn't in the best of health maybe there was a heart problem or something like that uh but some of that has been debated and there's also been you know, discussion that there was an issue with him, uh, after WrestleMania six, when you guys did that big tour in Japan and he wasn't feeling so well. So kind of carry me through how his in-ring career ends in the WWF. And then ultimately how he just is no longer a part of the company. As far as the way you remember it. Well, as far as I know, Bill had a heart issue. And he couldn't get licensed in a lot of the states. Back then, there were a lot more states that required that wrestlers be licensed with the athletic commissions in the states. And Bill Eady couldn't get licensed. He, he had a heart condition, whether it was a murmur or a skip, but there was some irregul- irregularity in his heart. And Bill was going to take on a role as an agent backstage. And Crush was brought in. Uh, we also talked about Bill Eady being the manager of uh, Darso and uh, Brian Adams. But, you know, after a little while, I don't think that worked out for Bill, and Bill wasn't happy with uh, being an agent and moved on, decided just to move on, do something else. What do you think that Bill didn't like about being an agent? The travel, dealing with the boys, combination? It's not for everybody. Uh, a lot of guys... Ted DiBiase, for example, Ted DiBiase is, is a great 
technician in the ring, tremendous worker, and can put together a match all day long for himself. But when you ask Ted to think for someone else and to help somebody else with gimmicks and ideas and putting their matches together, he just has a mental block. He can't do it. And it's it's a different mindset. Some guys are better at putting together other guys' matches and can't go out and have their own match, but they're better at putting together other stuff. So it was, you know, Bill was a great worker, but I don't know that being an agent was something he really wanted to do at that time. Uh, it's also worth mentioning that uh, there is a hilarious outfit in the promo photos that you guys shot, uh, which are really fun just to go back and look at. Uh, if you're listening near a computer where you can do this, just throw it in your Google machine. Uh, what the hell is Kerry Von Erich wearing here? It looks like a Chippendales outfit. He's got on like sequin pants with a stripe down the middle and then sequin suspenders. And you're not sure if he's wearing underwear or not. <laughs> Uh, was he, was he trying to do like the buff Bagwell, uh, handsome stranger dick dancer concept here? Or what's the, what's the thought for Carrie's gear here? Do you know? God, I, I don't know. You never really knew with Carrie. If I were to venture a guess, I think Carrie took every opportunity possible to, to hide his affliction and, and to hide his, his leg where he didn't have, you know, all of one foot. And I think that having the pants and all that was in his head, a way to hide that, even though he took them off when he got in the ring. Right. So who knew? Um, did the warriors have the, uh, Legion of doom rather, did they have any sort of issue as far as, you know, working with demolition? Was there any heat there? I know they had worked together in other territories and different concepts, but you know, the rumors and innuendo, what have you believed that there was some heat, with them stealing their gimmick. And I don't think it's a, a ripoff of the gimmick. And we'll talk about demolition at another point, I'm sure. But in this particular instance, but since this is their only pay-per-view match, do you remember there being any sort of issue or heat? No, never, ever that I, that I remember. Uh, God, uh, Hawk and Animal were pros, my opinion, my experience. And... I don't remember them having any problem whatsoever, especially because they were always made to look, look good against demolition. So they, no, not that I can remember. If anything, powers of pain were more the road warrior rip off than demolition. Yeah. Um, Mr. Perfect here loses in this match. Uh, he is uh, pinned by the ultimate warrior and not too long. You know, I mean, he had been around for a while and he really had a perfect streak. You know, he hadn't lost. Uh, and then he finally loses one on one for the very first time at WrestleMania 6, which would have been in Toronto earlier this year where Warrior wins the belt. So he's just, you know, six months after this here. Is he still being protected here by being the last guy out? And do you think there were plans or at least talks of putting him in the main event spot? Or was he always looked at as kind of the gatekeeper for if you can beat perfect, you're in the main events, but otherwise, you know, you're going to be underneath. You know, Kurt was, I think, always a main eventer. And 
when, you know, why there was never a huge program with Curtin Hogan, I couldn't tell you. Um, but, you know, Kurt was that guy, man, that you put him on the card, no matter who he was in the ring with, he would have the best match on the card. And in this instance, again, I'm, I'm watching it and watching Warrior doing his stuff that he would do with an enhancement talent to these these other guys that are top guys. And it just it just looks silly. It was bad. But but Kurt at least made it plausible and Kurt did his best to make everything Warrior did look as good as it possibly could look. So, you know, I, as far as is Kurt, I thought he was a main event guy and he was one of those guys that was cursed by being a great worker because he would be the guy you would put in to get other people over. Dolph Ziggler type position. Yeah, basically. It's a shame that that's, you know, a correlation that so many people see. I mean, right off the top of my head, that's who I think of. It's a curse. I'd put Owen Hart in the same in the same category. Uh, just to just to piss people off, let's skip the next match for a minute. We'll come back to it. Uh, we'll go to the uh, the match after that. The Visionaries, which is going to be Rick Martel, the Warlord, Power and Glory, which is consisted of Hercules and Paul Roma. They'll be seconded by Slick, and they're going to take on the Vipers, which is Jake Roberts, Jimmy Snuka, and the Rockers, uh, Shawn Michaels, and Marty Jannetty. Uh, in the promo photo, which I'm going to continue to reference all day, so if you're already annoyed by that, buckle up. These are hilarious to me, and uh, I'm fascinated by this giant. It looks like a hookah that Rick Martel's carrying here, and it says arrogance on there, and it's painted, and he still has it today. Uh, I saw a recent photo of him with it. Is this your automizer? It looks like a hookah. Are you looking at the right thing here? Oh, wait a minute. No, I'm not looking at anything. I, I, I don't have a picture on mine. We're doing a podcast. You're in front of a computer. Yeah. Throw it in your Google. What are you looking at? I'm, I'm, I've got it blown up here. You have a picture of him next to slick power and glory and the warlord in front of you right now. I do. What is that? In his I hand? can't tell. It's too damn small on my computer. That was the one that he had a pump, like an old fashioned perfume bottle. looks like a fucking hookah, man. Well, might've been used as that in, in a previous lifetime, but in my head, that's out of Bruce Pritchard's personal collection. And you're just kayfabing us right now. Easy tiger. Maybe it was Clint from Hershey's. Maybe. Uh, well, you're looking at this photo right now, these ridiculous sunglasses on power and glory. Is this something that the company draws up here? No, this was kind of before the company drew up everybody's gimmicks per se for everyone. And, uh, this was something that Paul Roma and Hercules came up with themselves. Now the warlord, the little W and that whole look was something the art department came up with. And so it's, a uh... Their gimmick, I mean, Warlord's deal is like half Phantom of the Opera, half RoboCop, half Wizard? That's three halves. Something like that, yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, it's it's funny, you know, just because time changes everything. In about half of these photos, the WWE released these 
where they had obviously flipped the image and it's not more prominent than on any than right here because Hercules and Roma's shirts say power and glory and they're, they're, they're backwards letters for the majority of the photos. Yeah, they were probably facing the other way, and they need them on the other side. Well, you can see, if you look hard enough, you can see photos where it's accurate. But on the majority of them, even the ones that WWE has made public in more recent years, it's still backwards, which just fascinates me. I know that you guys, you've told me before, and I don't know that you've told this story here. And What was the word you used when you would talk about how before a poster was released or something like that, they would kind of cut and paste empty seats to look full and they would patch up Hogan's hair to make it look fuller. It was called Cytexing. That's amazing to me that that was such a thing and, and kind of carry everybody through how that process looked and how much it cost and how long it took. Wow. It was expensive. It was before the days of Photoshopping and there were, you know, mandates that you didn't show pictures that had empty seats in an arena. And if there were empty seats that were visible in any still photos, they would take people and put them in chairs and recreate the sections around them. And back when Hulk's hair was thinning, uh, they would actually draw on hair onto the top of Hulk's head. How much would you pay to draw? Would you know? I always ask money questions. How much would Vince have to pay to get Hogan new hair drawn in on a poster? Well, for one magazine, the Cytexing bill was about ten thousand dollars, and that's when Vince realized it and blew a gasket. So he just wanted it done, and you guys were getting it done, but there was no regard for cost until he found out, and then he said, "Screw it, he's bald." Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and then I, then I told him how long it took to edit one of his matches so that we never saw the top of his head. You did that too. Oh yeah. How much would it cost to fix a match? Well, it cost in time. I mean, obviously everybody worked for us, but you know, where you would normally spend 30 minutes editing a match, they would spend hours editing a Hulk match. To, so to have the it, different right angles so you couldn't really see. Oh, yeah. You didn't see the top of his head. That's amazing. Ah, oh, you're telling me. Do you remember? It was insane. Were you there when they switched to HD? Yeah. I, we got to talk about that one day because there has to be some funny stories with that. But let's get back to Survivor Series 1990. Power and glory. Hercules and Paul Roma. Uh, any Anything interesting to mention about those guys here? No, you know what? I mean, I watched this match and it it was, I thought it was a hell of a match. You know, I fully expected for Warlord to just, you know, not be able to measure up with everybody else that was in the ring. And they kept it simple. They kept him doing big, big man, strong man stuff. And he held his own in there. But, you know, good God, look at the talent in there. Rick Martell. Uh, Hercules, Snuka, Jake, the Rockers. And even then you could see Shawn Michaels was just in a whole nother league. But again, you got Martell who is great, Jake. And it's the, the little just psychological things that Jake the Snake did, how he would go after a heel and allow that heel to escape. 
And it was logical, but he was always doing something. He was always in the, in the moment of trying to have an offense or trying to have a defense. There wasn't, you never saw Jake standing there waiting for somebody. If he was, he was doing something to make it look like he was doing something else. A lot of people messaged us on Twitter this week saying that they felt like this was one of the first matches that really saw something in Shawn Michaels and Bret Hart. Uh, they would tease the breakup of Shawn and Marty uh, at the following Survivor Series in 1991. When did you guys realize, uh-oh, we got something special in this guy? I would say Sean, probably around this time, but we, we felt we always had something special in the team. Right. The, they were just great. And when they were going around the horn with the powers of pain, the barbarian and the warlord, they just were, God, they were great. They, they were just so good. And for two guys, and, and this is one thing I know it goes up Shawn Michaels' ass sideways when you say, well, Shawn was a smaller guy, and he'll say, I'm six foot tall. Um, in the land of giants, he was a smaller guy. And they had, they, they had it down to such a fine art of making whoever they were in the ring with the best they could possibly be. And Shawn Michaels was unbelievable. Marty Jannetty was terrific as well but it was as a team they they were awesome but sean just had that extra spark i guess that that took him over the edge well and jimmy snooker was a bona fide star here as well you know obviously he's uh, a few years past his prime here but once upon a time maybe the second most over baby face in the promotion uh, and jake roberts at this time is still doing the baby face thing but man not for long uh, it wouldn't be many more months after this, and business would start to pick up, as they say, for Jake as a heel. Uh, but Jake was super over in the old days of Saturday night's main event and around this time. Can you you know, kind of share any Jake Roberts stories from around this time? This is before Jake, as far as I remember at least, um, was really in a bad way. Uh, at the next WrestleMania, he would be, you know, in the blindfold match, which we've already covered. Uh, and so they, you know, he had that angle coming. He had, you know, the snake bite thing coming. He had warrior in the snake den, and just some of his better work around the corner, but here he's a baby face and super, super over. And at least from Jake's perspective, he didn't get the push that he thought he deserved. Um, why do you think Jake never had an opportunity to be in a more main event type position. Is it because he was a baby face and nobody was going to take the Hogan spot? Well, essentially it goes to the philosophy of back in the old days, you had Bruno. Bruno was the top guy. And then you had Strongbow. Now, Strongbow was a top guy, but he wasn't the top guy. And Strongbow would get guys over for Bruno. And then after guys would finish up with Bruno, they would come back around and Strongbow would get his wins and get back over on the backside. I would say that Jake was kind of in that position here with, you know, Hogan and Warrior being in the top slots. 
So, you know, Jake was one of those guys who was a top guy, but he wasn't going to be the top guy. And, you know, I'm not talking out of school here. Jake had his demons. Even then, Jake had his demons. And there were, you know, different situations, you know, where they got the better of him. And it wasn't a, you know, it wasn't as prevalent then because, you know, we didn't have the Internet and guys it just, you know, wasn't known. Guys going to take off for a few weeks, so they'd be gone. Well, we knew because as soon as somebody was being taken off for six weeks, you kind of put two and two together. And, you know, Jake had had issues, so he wasn't going to be that guy that they could depend on to be the top guy. So are you saying from a booking standpoint, because you're involved in that at this point, no, I was in TV at this point. I was in production at this point. Okay. In, in so talent. you would just hear he's out for six months, but not know he's got an issue. Six weeks. Yeah. And yeah. well, I would know from Jake, but yeah, you know, the guys would talk. Okay. So, yeah. And you know, it just was a different time and, and it was, it was a different business and I don't think he was in the position for them to want to count on him a hundred percent to be the guy and not show up impaired. It's worth mentioning that uh, this is maybe the most stacked group of names as far as a Hall of Famer lineup. One of the most in history, when you just run through all the lines and all the names, but just look at this side, you know, of this one match we're talking about, Jake Roberts, Jimmy Snuka, Shawn Michaels, and Marty Jannetty, sharing a ring with Rick Martell. Uh, That's a big, big deal. Uh, and who am I to discredit power and glory in the warlord? Uh, we're going to skip the match everybody wants to talk about. We're going to get there. Uh, but the Hulkamaniacs are there. And in this one, we've got. Are we not going to do the Alliance of Mercenaries next? Or you want to do them after the Hulkamaniacs? Sure. Uh, the Alliance, Nikolai Volkov, Tito Santana, and the Bushwhackers take on Sergeant Slaughter, Boris Zukov. In the Orient Express. Bruce, who booked this shit? <laughs> what do you mean, man? The, it's let, me the run, let me run through the names again. Nikolai Volkov, Tito Santana, the Bushwhackers, Sergeant Slaughter, Boris Zukov, and the Orient Express. Is this the popcorn match of the pay-per-view? Wow. Yeah, I guess so. But, you know, this match was, was there for one reason, to get Sergeant Slaughter over. Uh, yeah, and he, he had to be over in this group. But despite all that, he's still in the Hall of Fame. He's in, Tito's in, uh, the Bushwhackers have in. Lots of Hall of Famers in this match. What the, the story being told here is we've just got to put over Sergeant Slaughter strong, correct? Correct. At this point, you guys already know what you're doing for WrestleMania seven. And at this point, you're just trying to drive it home. Yeah, we got a good idea. I mean, Sarge was hot and everything was going on and it was just a way everything else was fairly well set. So, you know, done the turn with Nikolai as a baby face and, uh, the bushwhackers or were great baby faces at the time. And Tito's your traditional all American Mexican baby face. And on the other side, you have the evil Orient Express. If that isn't a, um, just a 1960s <laughs> name for a 
Japanese tag team. And two great workers in Pat Tanaka and uh, Kiyo Sato. And Boris Zukov, the Russian from the Carolinas. And uh, Big Bob Remus. So it was, yeah, it was strictly that. It was probably not not the match people were waiting for that bell to ring. They were waiting for the bell to ring to end it, but not necessarily to start it. Let's run through uh, the fun finishes here. 48 seconds in, flying forearm takes out Boris Zukov. A minute 46 seconds in, a battering ram takes out Sato. Uh, two minutes and 13 seconds in, a flying forearm takes out Tanaka. Uh, five minutes and 25 seconds in, an elbow drop takes out Nikolai Volkov. Six minutes and 30 seconds in, a gut buster takes care of Luke. Six minutes and 53 seconds in, a clothesline takes out Butch. Uh, Lots of pins here for Tito Santana and Sergeant Slaughter. It comes down to them, and ultimately, Slaughter is disqualified uh, after uh, Sheik Adnan hit Santana with the Iraqi flag. So even in a loss here, you make Slaughter look strong. I mean, he's winning matches with elbow drops, gut busters, and clotheslines. Yeah, it was about six minutes too long. <laughs> oh, gosh. You know, do you remember the movie Twins with Danny DeVito and uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger? I do. This match is Danny DeVito. It's just the leftovers. You know, we could have sprinkled some of this and some others, uh, but no. Let's just put the uh, Road Warriors, the Ultimate Warrior, and Texas Tornado together. That'll be fine. There you go. Uh, let's circle up. Uh, and talk about the Hulkamaniacs. It's going to be Hulk Hogan. It's going to be Jim Duggan, the big boss man, and Tugboat. And they're going to take on the Natural Disasters, which are Earthquake, Haku, Dino Bravo, and the Barbarian. And we've already talked about Rude was supposed to be on this team, and he's replaced by Haku. And it's not hard to figure out, looking at this lineup, why he wanted the hell out of here. Um... Anything stick out to you in this match? Uh, it's the second longest match on the card. It gets nearly 15 minutes bell to bell. Uh, lots of super over baby faces on the Hogan side. Tugboat had been a made man thanks to his campaign to save the Hulkster and write your letters, kids, so we can capture your addresses for home catalogs. The big boss man's always been over. Jim Duggan was over, especially with the kids. And Hulk Hogan, that seems like the white meat babyface team of all time right there. Uh, anything stick out to you about this one? Jimmy Hart and Bobby Heenan are also involved. No, not really. It was, this one was a little tough to watch, but at the same time, I did forget how damn good Haku was and Earthquake was pretty damn impressive. It was it, you know, it was the whole thing here. You obviously had your issue with Hogan and Earthquake, and that was the main issue in that match because they had had their big match at uh, SummerSlam. And then Duggan and Bravo had an issue at the time, and the rest were just kind of, you know, put in there for filler. But watching it, I was shocked it. It wasn't horrible, and I wasn't expecting a whole lot. So it was one of those deals where you look back at that day in time and watching it now, you sit there and go, 
damn Hogan was over. Oh, yeah. I mean, he didn't have to do anything, and, and they, were digging it. they, they loved, loved it. everything he did. So it was uh, that part of it was, I don't think that audiences of today <laughs> necessarily would have liked it at all. But uh, back then, oh my God, they ate all of it up. Uh, you know, same thing with warrior to open up the show it was they ate everything up that he did. But if you go back and you look at the matches and you like in the, the, the warrior match and you see how great perfect was and you look at Kerry and you look at, how that match was orchestrated. And then you watch, you know, the Vipers with, with Jake and Martell and everything. And you see, they told good stories. And then the next match we'll talk about was they told really good stories in between, you know, the bell. Uh, anything else you want to mention about this match? Uh, I guess we could run through the eliminations. We probably could have been doing that this entire time, but uh, Haku is the first one out. Big boss man uh, eliminates him uh, a few minutes in. Uh, and then after that, we've got Jim Duggan uh, being disqualified for hitting Earthquake with a 2 by 4 A small package is executed by Hulk Hogan to take care of Dino Bravo. An elbow drop uh, does it for the big boss man when he takes it from Earthquake. A double count out for both Tugboat and Earthquake who would later go on to tag. And then the Barbarian is the last one in, and he gets the big boot and the leg drop treatment from Hulk Hogan to make Hogan the sole survivor. Uh, we should have mentioned in the uh, Visionaries-Vipers matchup, uh, the Visionaries had a clean sweep. Marty Jannetty is out, then Jimmy Snuka, then Shawn Michaels, and then Jake Roberts. Um, so clean sweep. For the visionaries, uh, the ultimate warrior from the warriors, uh, team is the sole survivor there. Uh, we mentioned that he finished perfect. So at this point we've got Tito Santana on one side, he's tagging with Hulk Hogan and he's tagging with the ultimate warrior. And then on the other side, we've got the visionaries and we might as well talk about it. The match we're here for, Survivor Series 1990. It's a pretty big deal, man. Um, we get lots of questions about this, and it lost the first time we put it on the poll. But Dusty Rhodes is here. He's tagging with Coco Beware and the Hart Foundation. And this seems to me like the moment in time where you can point to and say, hey, we're done with Bret Hart as a tag team guy. Bret is going to be a singles. Do you remember when this topic first comes up about breaking him, breaking him off from Jim, the anvil, Nightheart? Well, that actually started with, uh, Brett and trying to do something with him. Uh, was WrestleMania four or five. Whenever we had the battle Royal, that was Bad four. News Brown. Yeah. Four. And they eventually, they being Brett and Nightheart ended up back together. It really didn't work. And this was kind of another attempt to try and get there with Brett again. And it was just simply, you know, let's, let's try this. And, and out of, you know, everybody in that ring, you got DiBiase and Brett Hart, who it's funny. What my takeaway on this match was like, oh my God, if you had had Ted DiBiase and Brett Hart able to work a program 
right. when they were both in their prime. Right. Because their their in ring work here was off the chis art. It was tremendous. And it just kinda you go back and you watch this one match and you'd see those instances with Brett where you go, Good God, man, he's special. He he was unique and he stood out above it, you know. Obviously, the one guy, the mystery guy, is the one who stood out and, in my opinion, was the biggest star of the bunch. But um, you also see why Brett was so damn special. So this is the next to last uh, pay-per-view where, you know, they're working as a tag team. And I realize it's a bigger tag team. Uh, but the Hart Foundation uh, work as singles in the Royal Rumble and then lose their WrestleMania seven match to the nasty boys where they dropped the belts that they had just won at SummerSlam, uh, two out of three falls against demolition. Um, so this is kind of the swan song, so to speak, uh, for them as a tag team beyond WrestleMania seven, we're really winding down. Coco beware is also in this, uh, one of the more colorful characters. We've talked about him just briefly in the past. um, and then Dusty Rhodes is here, and Dusty is winding up. We just talked about how he had just a two-minute match at SummerSlam 1990 against uh, Macho Man. And after this, he's going to work the Royal Rumble in 1991, and then he's out of here. Uh, do you remember you know, anything in particular about Dusty in regards to this match? Well, I got some, some tweets on the Twitter machine talking about how why Dusty wasn't wearing polka dots. Dusty actually was wearing polka dots in this match. They were red. They were red, and they were strategically placed on the side of his trunks. They weren't all over his trunks. And he didn't wear his his polka dot poncho that he normally wore out or uh, the tank top that he wore sometimes. And, you know, it was just kind of a, a deal. We had DiBiase and Dusty, who had a program at the time. And, you know, Dusty's Dusty. This, this to me, was my favorite match on, on the card, not just because I was in it, but looking at the talent that was in it from oh, Legend and Dusty Rhodes and, and Brett, what he later on became, DiBiase, Greg Valentine. You know, Valentine had his working shoes on this night. Uh, I, I've always been curious about the Dusty thing because he did wear – you know, yellow polka dots for so much of his WWF tenure. And right here, even in the promo photos, he's not, he's wearing uh, like the black pants, uh, with the red polka dots down the side and then like a leather leather and then like a leather duster with red polka dots. And then he's got like a top hat with like a chicken foot or something. Chicken claw. What's up with that? Exactly. With an Eagle claw. How does he get away with this? It's it. If, I mean, why would Vince soften up on his polka dots, big yellow polka dots? How does this come about? It was a way of appeasing Dusty. He just Dusty won. wanted Dusty wanted to try the, you know, he says, I like to try the red polka dots. I'd like to try this, you know, a little bit different look. And, and Vin- he just, he just went to Vince and asked him, can he try it? And he said, sure. But he didn't come out with his uh, eagle claw hat. On the on the show itself, it came out like a, a baseball jacket or when, whatever. When uh, when Dusty's first telling you about this idea of this hat and what he wants it to be, what would that have sounded like? 
Pumpkin head, I got a hell of an idea. I'm gonna do this thing. I'm gonna change it up from the yellow polka dots. I'm gonna do red polka dots, maybe a little bit smaller. And I got a nice little top hat. It's got eagle claw. It's my eagle claw. It's gonna be on the top. And it's a badass look, babies. And that was pretty much it. And he sold it by God. <laughs> Good for him. Uh, he is, um, he's in really not great shape here, but he still puts together a decent little match for, and, and I thought it was a really fun match. Uh, I actually watched this one not too long ago because it's curious to see how some things have been kind of written differently as time goes on. Uh, but let's go ahead and let's talk about the situation here. Bad news. Brown was on the original uh, poster, the original promotional photos. So you've got, uh, Greg, the hammer Valentine, who in the promo photo looks like he is not wearing pants at all. Uh, he has on a jacket. He's dyed his hair. He's got the Elvis shades. He has a guitar over his junk and you can, he looks like the naked cowboy in times square. Uh, he's with honky tonk man, the million dollar man and bad news. Allen, bad news. Brown rather. What happens with bad news? Why is he not on the show? Don't have a clue. Don't remember. For the life of me, I don't remember. I, you know, I rem- the last thing that he, he did was the uh, the giant sewer rats with Jake. And I could not tell you. So I don't want to lie and make something up. But no, I, I don't have a clue. All right. Uh I want you to, I know you're at your computer right now, pull up this picture where they just show the shadowed image. Got it. What's going on there? Who is, who, what, what is that? The hair looks familiar, but they Photoshop or Cytex or whatever the hell you called it earlier, cash in the guy's hand. So he's completely blacked out, but he's got cash in his hand, which makes it interesting. What's the deal? Who is that? Well, I, I don't know. I, I don't know who that person is. No, it just was probably just a shape that the creative department drew. Is it Brutus the Barber Beefcake? I don't think so. No. Well, guess who it is. Don't say I don't know. I'm not taking I don't it. know. I mean, I wasn't I there. Just say I wasn't there. Get it in. I wasn't there. I don't think it's a shot of anybody. They might have used Beefcake's uh, frame and blacked him out. I don't know, but I mean, all of those shots, every one of those shots on that poster are all individual shots. Uh, none of those pictures were taken together. And, Almost and, all of them are, are like edited together. In recent years, maybe not that recent, um, since he's passed away several years ago, but before he passed away, uh, he talks about bad news does not being happy uh, with his SummerSlam 1990 payoff and saying that he left the promotion because Vince McMahon failed to live up to his promise to make him the first ever black champion. Was there ever any discussion, as far as you recall, of giving him a push in a major program with Hulk Hogan and there being even a momentary title switch just for heat? Well, he did, he did work a program with Hogan and 
you know, that's when Hogan was wearing that hideous helmet with the fist on the top of it and walking around with the, the gas can and with a big long straw and all that. That was during the bad news program. But to my knowledge, it was never discussed with me and I never heard an idea or a suggestion to make Allen the champion, even for a second. I'd never heard that. Help me out. I need to hear this story about the Hulk helmet. This has really gained <laughs> some popularity on the internet in the last few years. The message boards love this damn helmet. Whose idea was it? Is this Vince's solution to keep from having to spend so much on fixing his hair? What's up with this? He's, he's walking around with this motorcycle gas can. He's got a Hulkster California personalized plate and this like Hulkster fist helmet thing. What is this? It was all Hulk's idea. It was an idea to, you know, sell merchandising and to sell the license plates and maybe sell the helmets. And it was just something different for him to try something new and do something different. And that's unfortunately all it was. It wasn't, you know, one of those deals. I think that after, you know, the first round of promos and everything got out and, he did it for a little while, and then Vince was like, oh, God, Terry, it's just not working. He used the helmet in the matches, and that was that was the finish for a lot of those matches with Bad News, where he would hit Bad News with the helmet. And it just wasn't working. It just, just, it just didn't work. What did y'all call the helmet? Was there a nickname for it? Oh, I have no idea. I didn't know. I don't know. It's just a helmet that that, Let, that Hulk had. Fucking you know. give me something. I'm gonna ask it again. I don't know. Just, it was it was something. It, it was a it helmet up. that Hulk had. Make it up. And he wanted to use it. Come up with a funny name. Give me some comedy here. Let me ask again. Hey, so what was the nickname for this Hulk helmet? Fist fucker. Thank you. See, there you go. Was it was it really that hard, well, Bruce? I, go ahead. Thank you. I'm just saying. Let's fucking make this thing interesting every now and again. So he's got this fist fucker helmet. God, well, I can't wait till we get hashtag. And it was all my idea. Hashtag fist fucker on Twitter. Man, that'll get trending. That'll be popular. Uh, we're a family show or we used to be maybe probably never were. Uh, (laughs) this is awesome to me. Greg Valentine in rhythm and blues. Whose idea is this? Greg Valentine is a guy who, who came to the promotion, uh, not too long after he had, just a wonderful, very memorable, brutal talk about crazy for the time dog collar match, uh, with chains and such at one of the early starcades with Piper. And now he's here and bringing a guitar to the ring and just piggybacking the honky tonk man. It doesn't feel like it's necessarily up his alley, but getting a bigger check is. So he's here carrying me through whose idea that was and how that came about. Well, I'm pretty sure it was Vince's idea, and it was simply something to give Greg more personality and to change up, you know, Greg the Hammer Valentine with the blonde hair and his promos weren't the greatest in the world. And it was something to liven him up a little bit and give him a little bit more personality. Put him with Honky. Greg could be the workhorse, and Honky could be the entertainment, and they could do their thing. But Greg hated it. Oh, he hated it. Uh, on just every level. Uh, he fought doing his hair 
up until the very last minute. And they dyed his hair at TV and had the jacket there for him and the whole nine yards. And he, he pretty much half-assed it, you know, <laughs> throughout the whole gig. But it was a way, you know, was to give him a little more longevity and to do something different with Greg the Hammer Valentine and be rhythm and blues with honky. He could always bleach his hair back and go back to being Greg Valentine, but for the time, give that, you know, a little rest. Well, I enjoyed um, seeing him walk to the ring this day and look right at the camera. (laughs) (laughs) You could tell he could not give one fuck about being there or doing this. It was phenomenal. Uh, He hated it the whole time. Can't say I blame him necessarily. Uh, Ted DiBiase here is um, going to introduce the world to something that they weren't really ready for. Uh, I don't think anybody was. Nobody knew what to expect here. And this is our opportunity to talk about it in long form. So we're going to do it. Um, He introduces, brought to the ring by his manager, Brother Love, Kane the Undertaker. So give us the backstory about how you signed Mark Calloway away from WCW and get him to the big show, to the WWF. I had always been a fan of Mark Calloway from when he first broke in, in Dallas, Texas. And he, he walked the ropes. He had a very unique style, but it was reminiscent of a gentleman by the name of Don Jardine, who was the original spoiler back in the day. A big man who could move like a cat and great worker. And I always thought that I actually thought that Jardine had trained Mark. He didn't, but Mark was a big fan of Jardine's and stole a lot of his style. So I had my eye on him in Texas. He went to WCW, uh, very young. He worked down there as Mean Mark Callis. And he was one of the Twin Towers with Dan Spivey and Sid. And it just so happened one day I get a phone call from Paul Heyman, who was managing Mark in WCW, and asked me if there was any interest. That his contract was coming up in WCW and wanted to know if there was any interest in New York. And I went to Vince, and Vince kind of looked at him and didn't see a whole lot in him. And I asked him, you know, can we please meet him? There's something special about this guy from the way. And I didn't know him, didn't know him from Adam. I spoke to him on the phone a couple times. And it was one of those things that you just saw something in somebody that he had it. Begged him to meet with Vince and they were set to, uh, they, Uh, Mark was set to come to New York, meet with Vince the day after a WCW pay-per-view and Taker, uh, Mark had worked with uh, Lex Luger and Taker had dislocated his hip, but he worked the match because he knew that Vince was watching and wanted to have a great match. The match sucked. Uh, I'm not going to say it was, you know, all Lex's fault, but it also, you know, Taker had a dislocated hip Vince called me, 
I was at uh, was in the pool in Randy Savage's house, and Vince told me he wasn't interested in meeting with him. So he's just another big redheaded basketball player. Now let's run through this. The match you're talking about is Great American Bash 1990. Is that right? Could be. It yeah, was in Baltimore. I, it was July of 1990. Um, is when that match you're talking about. Yeah, that's about. about right. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So he was supposed to meet with you guys shortly thereafter. He was July. supposed to meet with Vince the day after. July 8th, 1990. Okay. So uh, I was in Florida. And like I said, I was uh, I was in the pool. And took the call. And I had to call Mark at the uh, Ramada Inn or whatever the hell it was. Hojo's the Ramada Inn there in Atlanta where everybody stayed. And told him we were going to have to postpone the meeting. I did not tell him that, you know, we were canceling the meeting. And I said, we're going to postpone it. And when I got back, I How did he talked take to Vince. Okay. He understood. Yeah. I just told him, you know, Vince was busy and, and we're going to have to postpone it. Not going to be able to do it. And I got back and begged. And they had a, they being WCW had a, an event at the Meadowlands, I think in the Northeast. And I said, look, he's going to be up here anyway. You know, we're not buying him a ticket. Just meet him. And we got, you know, got Taker and Vince together and Vince fell in love with him just personality wise. So it it was just timing and they, they met and I had an idea that I wanted to manage someone. I wanted to manage him particularly. I wanted uh, specifically him. And the idea was I wanted him to be the complete opposite of brother love. Well, brother love was full of love and peace, love and harmony all white. I wanted him to be all dark and just the complete opposite and came up with the name. Cain is kind of a biblical name. First man to ever commit murder. Cain murdered his brother, Abel. And so when the, let me run through this, I don't mean to interrupt, but you're designing this character specifically for him once he's signed. Yes. Okay. So it's not just, we want a big bastard that brother love can manage and we want to call him Kane and blah, blah, blah. It's you see, you meet him, you see him and you say, Hey, here's what we should do with him. I want him. Okay. And so and he gives us, he gives us notice to WCW August 27th. His final match is September 7th. Uh, and then he signs with you guys in October of 1990. So this is happening kind of quickly because we're at November 22nd. So from from October of 90, we'll we'll say the first, who knows when, uh, to now November 22nd, we're only like six or seven weeks tops to develop this character. Uh, now get back to your story. I'll stop interrupting. Sorry. Well, uh, he came up, he met with Vince, he met with Pat and they talked to him, so on and so forth and kind of shared the idea I had and asked me, you know, what do you see for him? And Vince had described him to the creative services art department folks, and they drew up some different looks for him. And one of the looks they drew up was that undertaker look. And Vince looked at him and says, God, he looks like an old timey undertaker. And so we came up with the name Kane, the undertaker. 
And so I came up with Kane. Vince came up with The Undertaker. And guess who won that one? But, uh, you know, the idea was I would manage him and be his mouthpiece because we weren't sure whether or not he could talk. And so I would be the mouthpiece and do all of his promos and just be the uh, loudmouth manager on the outside. So when um, you don't remember when the Bad News Allen thing happens, but when do you guys decide we're going to put him in the Survivor Series and we're going to we're going to get him over in a big way? Probably right about the time that we signed him, you know, thinking what better way to debut him than at Survivor Series? Because he could I, run I through know. a few guys. What's that? Because he could run through a few guys. You know, I don't even know if that was even considered at that point. You know, it was just like, how do we debut him in the biggest way? And no one would know who the hell The Undertaker is anyway. So if you advertised him, it you know wouldn't have mattered. So normally we would do vignettes and build a guy up over time, but this was an opportunity to slide him in, get him over strong, and debut a new character on, on a pay-per-view. It was just a different way of doing it. So the idea was, you know, to bring him in and have that be his debut and have him be impressive. What do you think is the situation with um, the locker room at the time? Does he come in with, you know, knowing a lot of the guys, or is this just, you know, a foreign deal for him? No, he knew a lot of the guys. He knew a lot of the guys from WCW. Uh, for example, I mean, he, he had known Dusty. He knew Hawk and Animal. As a matter of fact, I'll never forget um, when Vince was was looking at Sid way back when and was bringing Sid in for meetings, and, and Hawk told Vince, you got the wrong skyscraper. Um and he had actually suggested uh, Mark at that time to bring in. So, you know, Taker knew a few of the guys. So it wasn't like, you know, a whole new newcomer outsider. You know, he, he knew guys. Everybody kind of knew each other. But it was, you know, he was a big bastard, great look. And I think you'd be hard-pressed to find anybody that, that doesn't like The Undertaker or Mark Calloway. They're one in the same. Um, R- Percy Pringle uh, signs with the company in December. So the very next mm-hmm. month, when he's brought in, supposedly the talk is this might be somebody who could manage a Rick Rude or something like that since they had worked together. But Rude's not even on this pay-per-view. Had all of that changed? Did you guys sign him knowing he had this mortician background and this is what we're going to make him or how did that work? No, Percy had been in contact, you know, for a long time, you know, just wanting to come in and wanting to do something and they didn't know anything about Percy. And when he came in, as Vince always does, when he interviews guys, he asks them what they've done in their civilian life, if you will, before they got into the business, what their hobbies are, what their, you know, what they do, what their family's like, and so on and so forth. And when Percy said that he was a licensed mortician, I was like, oh, my God. Um, but I was already there, by God. So it wasn't uh, until Vince gave me the choice 
um, two months later to either go on the road with Undertaker full-time because he was a very special attraction, and if I was going to be a part of that attraction, I needed to be on the road with him all the time, or stay in the office, and I chose to stay in the office. And we had a guy that was perfect for him in Percy Pringle. Well, so he uh, he's introduced here as Kane the Undertaker. Um, what type of direction do you guys give? Well, a lot of that. Well, we gave him. We did give him direction that he wasn't to sell a lot. Um, we really didn't want him off of his feet, and that's tough when you're in there with all top guys. But the the sit up and the snap look and all this stuff. A lot of that was takers. The the initial the sit up was something that I stole from Jeff Van Camp, who was humongous in the mid south back in the day. He was also humongous there in Pensacola and Alabama as well. But he used to do that sit up and do the head spin and stuff like that, like Jason in the movies. And I suggested that to Taker. He ran with it, you know, later years and, and did that sit up. If he took a bump at first, he would just lay there dead and then do the sit up. But it was, we wanted him to be different. Wanted him to register, not sell necessarily. And very distinctive in his moves. We didn't want a whole lot of movement out of him. We wanted him to be, a dead man. Don't think we used those words at the time, but it was more Frankensteinish, if anything. So you said you didn't use those words. You guys didn't really, at this point, have the whole character mapped out as far as he's dead. You know, the concept no. here is just he's a scary, spooky looking dude who needs a nap. Exactly. Big, scary, you know, brother loves henchmen. Who comes up with um, the outfit? I know you mentioned, hey, he looks like an old-timey Undertaker, but who comes up with like uh, the circles under the eyes and all that? The creative department. Okay. The art department drew the whole thing, and when they drew his face and everything, they drew in the dark circles under his eyes and the hat and all that stuff. The whole, the whole trench coat, and then the look once he got in the ring and took the tie and the coat off. And the goal here was to have you be stark white, him be, you know, completely black. That was kind of what you were looking for from a look standpoint. Yes. Um, how far in, in it, now it, kids, if you're watching at home and you go look for this, you're not going to see it. WWE wants you to forget that he was ever Kane, the undertaker. Uh, they've edited all of that to where it just says the undertaker. They even edit the old school, uh, name listing when he comes out, like the old font and all that. It just says the undertaker now, but once upon a time, take my word for it. He was Kane, the undertaker. How long was he Kane, the undertaker before they just dropped that? About two weeks. Uh, I know they did an update with Lord Alfred Hayes where he referenced Kane, the undertaker and the undertaker is in quotes. Uh, so at one point the name was just going to be. Kane, obviously, with the nickname being like, you know, Texas Tornado, Kerry Von Erich, or whatever. Uh, whose idea is the Tombstone Piledriver? Uh, I think it might have been mine. Well, you're taking a lot of credit for a lot of shit tonight, so put yourself over some more. Anything else you want to say that you invented while we're doing it? The headlock. Okay, good. <laughs> 
Well, that that's really caught on. They're still doing that today. Um, talk me through the Undertaker when he's wrestling here. Does he wrestle any sort of dark matches or any house shows, or is this legitimately his first WWF match? As legitimately his first WWF match. So the first, so the first time he does any of these mannerisms is maybe just in a walkthrough before the show with you guys, and then he's doing it out here live for the first time. No walkthrough. First time you're seeing it. So back then, wait, back then there wasn't a walkthrough at all like there is now? Oh my God, no. Okay. So he just showed. Not at all. And so. We we walked through the, we walked through the last thing that you're going to want to talk about. That's about the only thing we walked through. Okay. Um, well, let's run through it. Uh, everybody, uh, gets busy in a hurry. The Undertaker, uh, pinfall win with the uh, tombstone over Coco Beware in short order, a minute 39. Uh, Jim Neidhart wins with a power slam, or not wins, he eliminates the honky-tonk man with a power slam about four minutes in. Um, Ted DiBiase gets some outside assistance from Virgil to take out Jim Neidhart. Uh, the Undertaker eliminates Dusty Rhodes after a double axe handle off the top rope. And then you start putting the boots, you as brother love, start putting the boots, the dusty on the outside. Roddy Piper on commentary calls you blubber love, which I find hilarious because you're kicking a man who's much larger than you. Um, and then I guess dusty starts to make some sort of a comeback on you. And then the undertaker gives chase. Am I remembering that right? You are correct, sir. So the Undertaker is counted out here, but not after he kind of dominates the majority of the match and everybody is putting him over, uh, Dusty Rhodes included. Anything in particular stick out to you about this moment? Well, it was a huge moment for me. You know, I'm, I'm in there working with Dusty, which I always loved working with Dusty. And being out with DiBiase and all that, it was just a lot of fun. But the I remember getting back. Coco was upset. Coco was was pretty pissed off and approached uh, Taker when he came back. Uh, felt Taker dropped him on his head, and you know I, I watched it again, and eh, it was a little snug, but it wasn't on purpose. And I think it was just simply a case of the nerves. And Taker's out there first time. He was kind of close to the ropes, and you know it ain't ballet, so. Taker apologized. Coco kept, you know, persisting, and I just had to pull Mark away because he wasn't going to win that one and just move on next. Well, yeah, Coco was a little upset, and Coco felt that he was a little too snug and took liberties. In the rest of the match or just with that particular finish? Just with that particular finish. Just on him, yeah. Uh, It's worth mentioning that we've heard this before. Um, I'm sure we'll talk about it at some point, but Survivor Series the next year, is when the decision is made to put the belt on the undertaker and he tombstones, uh, Hulk Hogan onto a chair that slid into the ring by, uh, Ric Flair and Hogan would go on to tell people that his neck was legitimately injured and that he was, he had a broken neck and he was putting a gurney after and sent to the hospital and undertaker supposedly, uh, he hasn't told me this personally, 
says that he never really forgave Hogan for that because it became clear when you look at the tape, he was a foot away. Uh, he took the best possible care of Hogan and that match happened in a, a place where undertaker could fly and his whole family to see it. And it was his first time winning the WWF world title. And he's working a pay-per-view main again, main event against Hulk Hogan. And that was all kind of robbed from him. And then he got a lot of heat supposedly with the office and they took the belt off of him quickly. And he wasn't in that spot again for a long time. So when Hogan would return years later to the WWF with the NWO and all that, and now the undertaker is kind of the big dog on the yard. He was not nearly as receptive to Hulkamania as he could have been because he still remembered that particular situation where it was an injury from a tombstone, but it really wasn't. Do you have any sort of recollection of any of that that I just ran through? Well, all of it is, is hearsay. Uh, I wasn't there. So, but you know, you, you described it pretty accurately and it, but there was never a time, uh, it, when they put the title on him, the Tuesday in Texas was, that was all had been laid out and was experimental deal and right. the whole controversy and all that stuff. So that wasn't a, oh my God, on Thursday night, we need to take the title off of him and have a pay-per-view on Tuesday. Um, the town was booked. <laughs> it came across that way urgent, urgently on television because it was written that way. But it was, yeah, that's you know pretty accurate as far as what I've heard. But Coco Beware had a more legitimate beef here than, yeah, than did. Hulk Hogan did. Yeah, and and Coco was was up, you know, in his face when he got back too. Well, kind of, you know. I know what you mean. He he was up in his chest for sure. He was fired up. At least uh, his belly button. Let's finish. Let's finish the rest of that match. Uh, Greg Valentine is eliminated by Bret Hart. Uh, a figure four leg lock from Valentine is turned into a small package. And then in the last pinfall of the match, Ted DiBiase uh, reverses a flying body press from Bret Hart to eliminate Bret. So now we get to uh, the final match which is going to pit uh, the survivors, Hulk Hogan, the Ultimate Warrior, and Tito Santana. So only three here. Uh, you can probably guess how many are on the other side. Ted DiBiase, Rick Martel, the Warlord, Power and Glory. So Ted DiBiase and the entire Visionaries team. So it's three on five. And by the way, the bad guys uh, have two managers with Virgil and Slick. How in the world... Can these three men take on five competitors and two managers? It's three on seven. Whatever will we do? But before we get now, we'll go ahead and do that match because there's one other thing that everybody wants to hear about. We'll just save that best for last. Um, anything stick out to you in this booking? This kind of feels almost war games ish where if you remember, I don't know how this works, but the heels always won the damn coin toss in the war games. And it was always a two on one advantage for the heels. And I guess every war games, it's almost like they would have started picking the other way. Don't say heads every time. Damn it. Say tails. Uh, but here in this concept, it's three on five. This seems like kind of booking one Oh one. Uh, any, any memories from this soul survivor match? The last one? No, I just hated it. It, it just was, Oh, it's just terrible. I didn't like it. Didn't like the concept. At least they protected Rick Martell in it. You know, Martell didn't get beat. He walked out. 
leaving DiBiase and Hercules out there last. And let's run or, through. Let's run through it. Uh, Tito Santana uh, eliminates the Warlord in 28 seconds with a flying forearm. Man, that fucking flying forearm is on fire. It's third, yeah, right. third elimination tonight. Uh, Ted DiBiase uh, gives a hot shot to Tito Santana a minute and 51 seconds in. Hulk Hogan pins Paul Roma with a clothesline five minutes and 57 seconds in. Rick Martell gets disgusted and just walks out about seven minutes in. Hulk Hogan uh, goes ahead and issues a leg drop to Ted DiBiase. And I found this a little odd. The last heel eliminated is Hercules. And he goes down to a warrior splash. And your sole survivors are Hulk Hogan and the Ultimate Warrior. Uh, And this is, what, six, seven months after WrestleMania six. Well, Hogan is not the champ. Warrior is, but we're going off the air here with Hogan and Warrior. Was there what was the dynamic between the two at this point? Well, I guess it would depend on who you asked. And I, I'm asking Brandon Hogan Love. went away after WrestleMania six to let Warrior have his moment as a champion, where you know Hulk wasn't around and couldn't say Hulk was stealing the spotlight. And it didn't, you know, I don't think that warrior necessarily drew well he didn't he didn't draw the kind of houses that hogan was drawing prior to that but when hulk came back with the whole earthquake thing and and they tried to coexist but you still had the the very real situation where hulk would headline one show and warrior would headline the other and if you were a talent you wanted to be on the hogan show because it drew better and you got paid better so there was, I think, a little professional jealousy between the two and trying to balance that and, and trying to balance that with the audience. You know, Vince didn't want to make the, you know, he didn't want to make the audience choose at this point. He wanted the audience to cheer them both and, and give them a hero's welcome for both of them. So you had the Hogan drop the leg and then on DiBiase, one, two, three, and then did whatever he did to Hercules. And then Warrior came in and did his last stuff. And then, of course, the two heroes pose at the end and Warrior sits on the rope and holds the rope for Hogan to get out. And then Hogan sits on the rope and holds the ropes for Warrior to get out. And it was, to me, just kind of kissing your sister and, but that's, you know, Hogan must pose. So we had Hogan pose at the end and the two baby faces ran supreme at the end of the night. That was, I guess, the whole idea behind the ultimate survivor. But when you talk about an ultimate survivor, I keep going back to, I wanted one survivor out of the whole thing. And instead you had two Hogan and warrior. Um, you know, I'm a belt guy. I really enjoy belts. Obviously, everybody listening should, too, at leatherbydan.com. Uh, the belt here, the world title, is on white leather with red backing. And that really stuck out to me. We've never really talked about this on the show. Uh, whose idea was it to give Warrior, like, all these different colored straps for the world title? I mean, he did it with the Intercontinental title. He had the first yellow one. And then I know, uh, as a world title, he did like a blue one and he did a white one. And I think there was a lavender one, lots of different colors. Do you remember whose idea this was? 
think it was Warrior's idea to go with his outfits and just to change it up and be different. Like you said, going back to the Intercontinental belt. Uh, you're more of a wrestling purist. What do you think about you know having all these inter- interchangeable straps? I hated it. I was waiting on you to say that. I knew you had to. And to me, you think everything should be on like black or brown, right? No, I think that there should be one trophy, one championship that everybody's gunning for. Yeah. And when it changes all the time, it's kind of like when Jeff Hardy had his, had his own belt in TNA. I hated that. It's like, you should have one championship that everyone's going for. I, I even Steve with his smoking skull belt. It's like, yeah, you know, there should be one, one big championship that everybody goes for. And I think it should be uniform. Well, and that's probably because you're more of a traditionalist, which is why you booked the gobbledygooker. This is why we're really here. A lot of people want to talk about the ultimate, uh, warrior and Hulk Hogan. A lot of people want to talk about what happened with Rick rude. Most everyone wants to hear about the survivor series debut of the undertaker, but not me. I want to talk about the gobbledygooker. Let me just get it out of the way. So you can lie to our audience. Was this a rib? Sure. What? Yeah, sure. Well, guys, thanks for listening to our show this week. Uh, this is our last one. Uh, the entire focus of this show, this series of show has been to, um, try to get Bruce to admit that something was a rib and it looks like we've done it. So we appreciate you tuning in. Uh, thanks for listening. All right. See you, um, in another 30 years. You know, the gobbledygooker (laughs) was, look at the, are you looking at a picture? Just look at this. And what picture? Just fucking throw it in your Google machine and just look at how ridiculous this is. The gobbledygooker? I'm making this my background right now. I'm going to leave it through Thanksgiving. With the the, the whole body or the head? The whole thing. The the moment when he pops through. You you want me to just go ahead and spill exactly what the gobbledygooker was supposed to be? Or do you want to talk about all the rumor and innuendo where it was supposed to be this guy? was supposed to be that guy. supposed to be this guy. supposed to be that guy. Uh, whatever you, you want, whatever you want to give me, I'm good with. Well, I hate to spoil all of the conspiracy theorists out there that swear that it was supposed to be Ric Flair in the egg. It was never going to be Ric Flair in an egg who coming out that? of an egg. Who said that? A lot of people. I've never heard from that. day one. The gobbledygooker was coming out of the egg from day one. The whole reason that the egg was created was for the gobbledygooker. And the gobbledygooker was an idea. You're saying gooker. Is it gooker or gooker? Hey, you say gooker. I say gooker. No, I say gooker. You say gooker. You know, it's the gobbledygooker. Um, Hector girl said gobbledygooker. So what did he say? Come cooker. Okay. Okay. So the idea from day one was 
that there would be this gigantic egg that appeared <laughs> on WWF programming, <laughs> causing speculation as to what in the hell is in the egg. And I would venture to say that we succeeded at having people wonder what was he- what the hell was in the egg. Would you agree with me there? Even at nine years old, were you wondering what the hell was in the egg? Sure. Okay. But everybody else was. So they just naturally assumed because it's wrestling, there must be a wrestler in the egg. Well, if it was in a box, it would have gotten over. Ask Jim if Cornette. it was in a box and come out of a box, instantaneously over. It's a rule. Wait, 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 wait. So, Tell me that again, but do it the way what? I want you to. What's that? Come on. Coming out of a I box. Did... and uh, There's a guy Ripping. who's... There we go. <laughs> Put somebody in a box and come out of a box. I did their... They're automatically over. Fuck, everybody knows that. Put them in a goddamn box. A dude the butcher came out of a box. He was over. George Animal Steel came out of a box. He was over. One time on Memphis, Tennessee, we had a box on the TV for six weeks. Frank Morrell came out. He was over. Um, but this was an egg. So we were waiting for the egg to hatch. And the incubation period was just about so that it would hatch at Survivor Series. And... The whole concept behind the gobbledygooker was that (laughs) it would become a mascot of sorts for the WWF, kind of like the San Diego chicken. And the gobbledygooker would travel on the road to live events and be in the crowd with the kids and get people, you know, going with chants and dancing in between matches and, and kind of being, well, being a mascot. It's a live events, you know, come on, clap your hands and everybody dance with the gooker and shit like that. That was the idea. That was the concept. And the choice for, the person in the gobbledygooker outfit was Hector Guerrero. How did that come about? Well, Hector was, uh, looking for a job and wanted to come in as a worker. And the idea was one of that can bring Hector in and Hector could work like the opening match on a house show and then come back, put the gobbledygooker outfit on and come back like during intermission or whatever and entertain the crowd and, and be the mascot. So he could do double duty. Well, for everybody that's seen it, you kind of remember the anticipation and the excitement of, of the egg starting to crack and the lights coming out. And, and, and by the way, the description of what was supposed to happen and what actually happened are two completely different things. Break it down for us. Well, yeah, you have to place yourself in a production meeting with Vince explaining that and then the egg will shake. And as the egg shakes, it starts to, you start to see the egg crack. And as it cracks, one piece comes off. And then lights come shining through the egg. And then we have like smoke and <coughs> like fireworks that come through the egg. And, and then the goddamn thing, it explodes. And all this smoke and flames and everything come out. And then 
from the shell comes the gobbledygooker. Well, you saw what happened. The egg kind of shook a little bit, and then, and you could see the pre-cut cracks in the egg already. And uh, as the egg started to come apart and the chicken came from the egg, there was the gobbledygooker. And on top of it, you know, we, we did go over that. This was one thing, yes, we went over things beforehand. We did go over this uh, prior to the event and rehearsed it with Hector. And, and Hector was a gymnast teacher at the time. He was teaching gymnastics. So he had explained how he could do all these great flips and moonsaults and different things off the ropes and just do some incredible uh, acrobatic flips and what have you um, with the with the suit on. Well, once he got the suit on, he was very limited <laughs> as to what he could do because he couldn't see that well. <laughs> and the other thing is, is that when we rehearsed it, I don't remember having a microphone for Gene Okerlund for the initial interview with the gobbledygooker. So Gene was supposed to ask him what his name was. And of course, Gene knew what the name was that he was going to be the gobbledygooker and, and Hector. We said, you know, you can't just come out and say the gobbledygooker. You have to sound like, you know, either a chicken or a turkey, like they would gobble and be, you know, gobbledygooker. But Hector just kind of went, and it was muddled, and just she couldn't understand a thing that he said. And then finally, Gene said, "What is with all this gobbledygook? That you're, you're the you're the what? You're the gobbledygooker? Oh my!" But you could—I mean, it was like a fart in church. You could have heard a pin drop when. Well, no, actually, you couldn't have heard a pin drop because people were booing the shit out of it. And so that wasn't enough that we then sent them to the ring and had uh, Hector and Gene dance around for a little while and Hector do a couple of uh, forward rolls and then went for his big spot where originally it was supposed to be Hector go up to the top rope and do a big moonsault, which wasn't something that you know anybody did back then, and do a backwards moonsault into the ring and land on his feet. But... He was uncomfortable doing that with uh, all the gobbledygooker gear that he had on and just did a forward roll over the top rope into the ring. So, yeah, it was the shits. Um, Were you on – were you in Gorilla when this happens? I probably was. I I do remember watching it live going just thinking, where is a hole I can crawl into? In my head – Vince is like dancing around to it, kind of bobbing his head, moving his shoulders, and he's trying to get into it because he liked the idea. Do you see Vince when this is going on, and what's his reaction? Well, you were there. Oh, that's what happened? <laughs> Pretty much. And laughing. <laughs> Look at him. Look at him. Oh, my God. They hate him. No, but he, he, I mean, he admitted it. Oh, God. They're booing the shit out of him. <laughs> Oh my God, they hate him. And, um, bless Hector's heart, man. He, he, he gave it his all. And, uh, we, we actually, man, we toured the damn thing and we put him out on the house shows and it was the same reaction. 
and Hector had all kinds of ideas and things you could do with the gobbledygooker, and it just, no, nah, they hated it. However, I think that if they were to bring the gobbledygooker back today, it'd get over. What was the reaction? Uh, I mean, when Hector came back through the curtain, do you remember? I mean, did Hector know, boy, that fucking died a slow death, or was, was he trying to be optimistic? Hector's an optimistic guy in general, but Hector was trying to be optimistic. Well, I mean, to shit on it would, to, you know, I mean, this is yeah. his job. He's got to try to put it over. Uh, do you remember uh, talking to um, Okerlund after the fact? I don't really remember talking to Gene right after the fact. Gene wanted to crawl in a hole. Gene knew it stunk. Gene sure. was trying to get the hell out of there. Does it, um, coming out of a show like this, are people talking about the new guy, the Undertaker? Um, how they you know debuted this kid from WCW with a big push? Are they talking about Hogan and Warrior? Or are they talking about the Gobbledygooker? I'm not talking about fans. I mean the boys. Oh God, I, I think for the most well, really and truly, I think most people were talking about uh, how horrible the Gobbledygooker was, and second would be Undertaker. It was horrible, man. <laughs> I mean, it was, it was a slow, painful death, and yeah, there's no other way to describe it. It, it was horrible, but the concept was, you know, interesting in and of itself. Uh, when they brought this back uh, in recent years, it wasn't the same outfit. They want us to believe it's the same outfit. It's not the same gobbledygooker outfit. Any idea where the original wound up? No, I don't. Uh, I remember the lady that made it was in Norwalk. Her name was Linda. and Norwalk, Connecticut? Yeah. Uh, but nobody knows what the hell happened to the original one. You think Hector has it? I don't know. He may. That'd be a logical place to start. What a fun. But I know that when they brought him back for the gimmick battle royal that it was a different completely different outfit he said he didn't have it but that's where i would start well anything else you want to cover on survivor series 1990 hartford connecticut november 22nd 16,000 fans shane douglas in a dark match against buddy rose soul survivors Hulk Hogan and Ultimate Warrior, the debut of Kane the Undertaker and Gobbledygooker, two far ends of the spectrum as far as wrestling success goes. On the one end, Gobbledygooker, and on the far, far, far end, the Undertaker. Anything stick out to you? I think we kind of covered it. You know, overall, watching the show wasn't a bad show. No. Overall, I thought it was a pretty good pretty good show it, it's just that people get hung up on the gobbledygooker and and the rumor and innuendo that it was supposed to be rick flair that uh, undertaker was supposed to come out of the egg that uh, i don't know what the hell else was out there i know flair was the big one but no that was never considered the egg was created for the gobbledygooker and by god it was carried out so if the plan was always to have the gobbledygooker be this you know, egg situation. Um, carry me through if bad news hadn't fell out of favor with the company 
when would the Undertaker have debuted? If not here, where? How? Don't have that answer because it's you know it happened this way and and there was nothing else ever discussed at that point. You know, timing is everything, and that's how it happened. I would assume we probably would have done some vignettes with him and debuted him eventually on TV. But at the time, you know, there was really with everything that, that happened, um, and timing and needing somebody in that spot. Well, shit, we got this new guy. Why not debut him there? So it's just timing, just one of those deals. Who knows if it would have been as successful had we done, you know, vignettes and done different things. Who knows if we would have, you know, been able to drill the name Kane into people's minds earlier. You know, you'll, one of those deals we'll never really know. But now we know more than we ever thought we would about Survivor Series 1990. Until next week, we can't wait. We're looking forward to it. We have a good time doing this despite what the rumors and innuendo are. We don't really hate each other. Most of the time, only two hours a week, these two hours on something to wrestle with. Well, Conrad hates me. I love him. Bruce Pritchard. John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round. Together, it's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on. Right? How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra? I think I can get an extra 5 to 10. What if I give you 15 to 20? Can <laughs> you pay me more? Jeff Smith right? teaches on the sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen.